We always tell you that we invest a portion of our salaries every single month, but we don't usually go into any further detail. But that changed last month when we spoke about our November investments and we've decided to do it once again for December. We'll be talking through how we invested our money this month, our thought process, and also a number of stocks that we decided to sell, all on this episode of the Stocks and Savings podcast. Hi, we're Andrea and Jamie, two millennial investors and chartered accountants that are here to help you become more confident about the world of investing and finance. We want to give a disclaimer that we are not financial advisors. Nothing in this podcast should be treated as financial advice. This is for educational purposes only. When investing, your capital is at risk and the value of your investments may rise and fall. We'd like to thank our season sponsor, Trading212, for helping us to bring you this podcast. Trading212 is an investing platform which aims to democratize investing and is also the platform that we've used since we started, but more on them a bit later on. So as you said, in this episode, we'll be breaking down where we invested our money this month. Andrea put her money into four different investments and I put mine into three. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I hope you're going to be proud of a certain investment that I made this month. We also did a little bit of selling this month, particularly Andrea, which doesn't happen that often. So we'll chat a little bit about that as well. So Andrea, why don't you kick us off with your first investment this month? Well, the first investment I made this month was putting £550 into the Invesco EQQQ NASDAQ 100 ETF, ticker symbol EQQQ. This is an index fund that tracks the NASDAQ 100 index, a stock market index made up of 100 mostly technology-focused companies in the United States. If you listened to our episode a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the Magnificent Seven, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, aka Google, Nvidia, Tesla, and Meta, aka Facebook. These giants of the technology world have delivered fantastic returns for investors so far in 2023. And they also make up over 40% of this NASDAQ 100 ETF. In July this year, they actually had to rebalance the NASDAQ 100 index. So that means that they had to sell some of these stocks because they had such a fantastic run that they made up over 50% of the index. So that's kind of crazy to think about. These magnificent seven stocks make up over 40% of the NASDAQ. And that's after the NASDAQ had to say, okay, we're doing a special rebalance here, which I think they've only done two times in their history prior to this. So yeah, 40% or more than 40% is obviously a huge chunk, but it used to be even bigger. But I know you already have quite a few technology stocks as your individual holdings, and you already invest in quite a few of those Magnificent Seven companies through your global stock market funds. So why bother to buy shares in this NASDAQ ETF? Well, there's two main reasons, really. The first is that I'm realizing more and more that I want to move away from investing in individual stocks. Don't get me wrong, I still like studying different businesses and kind of finding out their intricacies but I just don't have as much time as I did for it in the past, especially as we're trying to grow our own business here. And obviously I'm learning a lot through that, uh, which is really exciting. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's tough as well, because you know when we're investing, we're aiming to invest for decades. And when you're taking the approach that we take of investing a regular amount every single month and doing that for decades, you kind of need to take approach that you think you can keep up with for decades. Because if you're changing your approach between individual companies and funds, like over the course of decades, you won't benefit from that average. Exactly. And, you know, you do have to spend quite a bit of time to be up to date with the different individual stocks that you invest in. And I just don't really have that type of time anymore. 
So I'm quite happy to move away from individual stocks into a more technology-focused ETF that is pretty similar, I would say, to most of my holdings. Yeah, and you probably feel a lot more confident that that is something you'll be able to do for decades rather than keeping up with all these individual stocks. Exactly. That's my second point. I plan to invest for decades, so I am happy to go for a higher risk, potentially higher reward investment than just the Vanguard FTSE All World ETF. I do believe that technological innovations will continue to drive economic growth and that the United States stock market will be strong for the foreseeable future. So it makes sense for me to try and benefit from that by investing in the tech-focused Nasdaq. So still investing in kind of like high-growth technology for decades, but just not individually hand-picked high-growth technology stocks. Yes, which makes it slightly less risky, I suppose. Even though I wouldn't say that the Nasdaq 100 is a low-risk investment by any means. What about you? What did you invest in this month? So the first place that I decided to invest this month was in a lesser-known company, or at least I'd say a lesser-known stock, that is probably one of my longest holdings. I first bought shares in this company in November 2020, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride ever since, which, to be honest, can describe a lot of my investments, especially if you picture a roller coaster that kind of just goes up and then just goes down. Kind of like, I think it's called Stealth at Thorpe Park. I have no idea what you're talking about. Is it more like one of those lifts or something <laughs> that just kind of take you up and then they just drop you? Yes and no. I mean, it's a roller coaster. Oh, wow. So I'm just showing Andrea a picture of it. So it's like a bell curve, I guess. Exactly. Straight up and then straight down. Oh, wow. <laughs> that looks fun. Not. No, I'm, I'm too old for roller coasters. Like, I get motion sick even just going in the car. Like, it's terrible. I have been on it before. It is good. It's quite a new one. It is quite, it's really high. You can kind of see it from miles away. Anyway, I should probably get back to this stock, which has been a roller coaster. And much like Stealth, did go straight up and then went straight down for me. And I am talking about HelloFresh. And that's a company that I decided to invest an additional £250 into this month. Unsurprisingly, HelloFresh has always fluctuated in size as a percentage of my portfolio. And right now it's pretty low, making up 2.4% of my overall portfolio. But it hasn't always been like that. There are times that HelloFresh has made up 5 or 6 or even 7% of my total portfolio. So before I dive into why this figure has fallen so much, I'll first outline briefly the investment case for HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit provider with a mission to change the way that people eat forever, which I quite like that mission statement. It's a bit weird. <laughs> why? I feel like it sounds like they're growing lab meat or something, you know? You don't know what they do behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah. Well... The way they do this at the minute is by delivering pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow recipes directly to customers' doors. This allows busy individuals or families to skip the hassle of meal planning and grocery shopping while still preparing delicious home-cooked meals. We personally have used HelloFresh for a very long time, and I can't see us going back. Though it is quite expensive, isn't it? Like We, we always manage to get a discount, <laughs> but I don't know, the full price is a bit expensive. Yeah, the full price is expensive. But as you say, we managed to get discounts, although I will touch on that in a minute. So the company also owns a number of different brands. HelloFresh is a brand that most people know, but it also has some more premium brands such as Green Chef and some more affordable brands like EveryPlate in the United States. And it also made a very exciting acquisition a couple of years ago of a company called Factor, who deliver fresh meals that can simply be heated up in the microwave. 
Now, for me, the investment thesis for HelloFresh is quite simple. Within the meal kit industry, HelloFresh is the clear leader. For example, in the United States, HelloFresh had a market share of 45% back in 2019, according to Bloomberg's second measure, which made it the biggest meal kit company in the US by far. Now, in my eyes, one of the biggest advantages that HelloFresh has over its competitors is size. HelloFresh is the largest and most dominant company, and since it operates in an industry that requires quite a lot of investment in warehouses and supply chains and so on, the larger a company is, the more efficient it can become, and the more efficient it can become, the more profitable it can become, or the more aggressive on pricing it can become to try and wipe out the competition. Now, remember how it had a market share of 45% in the US back in 2019? Fast forward three years to 2022 and HelloFresh achieved a market share of an astounding 78%, which is just total domination. It's clear that HelloFresh can hold off the competition and is managing to do that whilst actually being profitable, which might surprise you because if you've ever joined HelloFresh, like us, you've probably had like 50% off, 40% off and thought, you know, there's no way this company can be making money. Well, that's what we thought too. And we were very wrong. Even though the company has struggled in the last year with growth and it's been investing quite a lot in its expansion, it has remained profitable. So I think here is where we hit some issues. HelloFresh went through a huge boom during the pandemic, which should be no surprise. The company saw demand skyrocket as we were all stuck inside and had plenty of free time to cook up some nice meals. But in a post-pandemic world, it's been far more difficult to grow. In fact, over the past 12 months, HelloFresh's revenues have only increased by 4% and its number of active customers have actually declined by 6%. Not only that, but HelloFresh's management team recently lowered its full-year guidance on revenues and profitability, mainly due to some issues in expanding its production capacity for the company's Factor brand, which has been growing very rapidly. So why did I decide to invest in HelloFresh this month? Simply put, I feel like shares are just too cheap compared to the opportunity that this company has ahead of it. And the fact that this has been proven to be an effectively managed company that has successfully executed time and time again means that this isn't just some story stock of, oh, I hope that meal kits take over the world, but rather it's looking at a well-run company with a history of strong performance and good execution. And here's a fun exercise. Let's compare HelloFresh right now to HelloFresh of four years ago. The number of active customers have increased by 171%, and the company's revenue has increased by over 300%. So pretty good. And so if you had invested 100 quid into HelloFresh shares four years ago, that investment would now be worth around 75 quid. Despite all of the improvements in the business over the past four years, shares have actually declined by 25%. Now, just seeing this isn't a reason to go and buy a certain stock of a certain company, but it is just one of many factors that help to explain why I decided to buy some shares of HelloFresh this month. Okay, but it feels like the stock has been so volatile in the past three years. And fine, I get the pandemic boom and the post-pandemic world. But even in the last year, I remember about six months ago, maybe it just spiked like 30% in a month or some, something crazy like that. And now it's gone back to the levels before that spike, pretty much. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when. I think about six months ago, I put about 500 quid in HelloFresh when their shares were at about 18 euros. And then I sold about 500 quid's worth after its shares had 
almost doubled and hit 33 euros. Oh, never mind. So not 30%. But I think it was maybe 30% in a day. That kind of just shocked me. Yeah, it has been volatile. I mean, it is a smaller company. It's only a two or three billion euro company right now. And sometimes shares of smaller companies can be more volatile. I think what the big issue has been for HelloFresh, or at least why shares have been so volatile, is I think it's experienced periods like this, where I look at its shares and I think, you know, the market is pricing HelloFresh shares as if this is a fad that is over. And then every now and again, the market is reminded like, oh, wait, maybe this isn't a fad that's over. Maybe this is actually a really good company, really well run with a really good proposition for customers. And so the market, you know, goes a little bit in the other direction, because let's face it, the market can be extreme. And the smaller the company, the more extreme the movements tend to be. Yeah, I guess maybe this is something to keep in mind if you're listening to this and you're looking at a smaller company as well. Or, or even at HelloFresh, just keep in mind that there'll be fluctuations and sometimes really wild fluctuations. So it's not for the faint hearted. No, definitely not. I do think one of the biggest risks to HelloFresh's investment thesis is if it does end up being a fad. Now, I, I personally don't think it's a fad. Obviously, we use HelloFresh and it's a massive part in our lives. If that disappeared, we would not be very happy. So I think there's certainly some personal experience there that makes us think that this has legs. This is something that could make everyone's lives easier. And I also think as HelloFresh gets bigger, it can get more affordable. And if you can get easy to cook, pre-portioned fresh ingredients delivered to your front door to cook a variety of meals every single week, I don't understand why you would be attracted to going and buying your own ingredients. Obviously, some people are. Some people are really into cooking or some people really are watching costs. But if HelloFresh can expand and do it for cheaper, I think it does have the potential to change the way that people eat forever. And if it does do that, then I think the current share price looks kind of ridiculous. Obviously, there are some risks, but for me, the potential rewards outweigh those. All the stocks and ETFs in this episode can be found on Trading212. The next 45 seconds are kindly sponsored by Trading212, but we have used Trading212 long before we had a partnership with them. Now, one of the reasons why we chose Trading212 for our stocks and shares ISAs is the wide range of investments available. From index funds and ETFs, including Vanguard ETFs, to stocks like the ones mentioned in this episode, there's something to suit most investing styles. This gives us the flexibility to diversify our portfolios, a strategy which can reduce risk when investing. This is why we chose Trading212 and almost four years on, we still have our stocks and shares ISAs with them. Because apart from their low fees, the app is really easy to use and they offer a great range of investments. If you sign up to Trading212 using the referral link in the description and deposit at least the minimum amount required for Invest or ISA accounts, which at the time of recording is £1, you can get a mystery free share worth up to £100. Terms and conditions apply. Before we get onto some of the other things we bought this month, I think it's important to touch on a couple of investments that we sold, because we don't usually sell too much, but this month was a bit different. And also, that's the reason why we actually have a bit more money. Well, a lot more money to invest this month compared to what we usually invest in general. So we have £750 each to invest every month. We put that aside from our take-home pay. But this month, I had almost £2,000, I think, which was, uh, yeah, quite nice. <laughs> yeah, but as you say, that was mainly because you sold so many 
companies, which was very unlike you. Yeah. Who is she? <laughs> new year, new me. Well, almost. <laughs> well, I sold less. So I decided to trim my position in a company called Cloudflare by around 15 or 20%. And this means selling just over £200 worth of my investment in the business. The company itself is quite a complex one to understand. But simply put, it's an internet security and performance business which makes the internet faster, safer, and more reliable for businesses. It's one of three cybersecurity businesses in my portfolio, although I would say that the other two, which are called CrowdStrike and Zscaler, are more obvious cybersecurity companies. The main reason that I trimmed my position in Cloudflare is simply because the stock appears to be pretty expensive right now, and I don't necessarily think it merits such a high premium price. Plus, when I put it through my valuation framework, it came out as pretty overvalued. And I kind of have a little automatic thing that says, if it's predicting this return, then you should buy it. If it's saying it'll be this return, then you should trim a bit. You know, I don't expect myself to have a crystal ball and accurately predict what share prices will be in the future. But having this kind of automatic rule, especially when it comes to selling, helps me to sometimes put the emotion aside and take these decisions to slightly trim stocks that look quite expensive in order to try and reduce some of the risk in my portfolio. And it's worked out so far since I started taking that approach about six months ago. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking some profit when it comes to individual stocks, at least. I think when you're investing in index funds, it's a bit different because you're less likely to be right when it comes to judging if an index fund is overvalued or not, you know, because that represents the whole market. So you're basically saying, nope, I am smarter than the market, you know, than all these professional managers. Whereas with individual stocks, especially smaller ones, I think that these inefficiencies, let's call them, in the market could happen more often and could be more prevalent. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, in my eyes, that's something that's happening with HelloFresh right now. But in general, it's a little bit easier to understand a business, understand the opportunity, understand how things are looking for that company. And then you can kind of think, okay, it looks like the market is undervaluing this stock or is overvaluing this stock. And particularly with individual stocks, there are also traders who are looking to buy and sell and they can really affect the price. Like traders and algorithms can really make the price of a company shoot up or shoot down unnecessarily. I think this was something that I saw with Adyen when shares got cut in half after a not great, but not awful quarter. And that was another one where I bought a bunch of shares and then they've increased by about 50 or 60% from their lows. And I don't see that as me being particularly good at time in the market or good at investing. I just see it as Adyen was a really good company before its results cut its shares in half. And so I didn't see anything that was too different with the business. It just felt like something was wrong with the market. And I think you will see that stuff for individual stocks. But as you say, if you're investing in like the S&P 500, which takes the average of 500 stocks in the US, you know, that's going to balance out. And especially with a global index fund with over 3,000 companies, you know, the odds are any inefficiencies that are making some stocks you know, look undervalued will be cancelled out by inefficiencies making some stocks look overvalued. It can be a lot harder to be like, oh, yes, this is a great opportunity or oh, the, the entire global stock market is overvalued right now. Yeah, like that guy, what's his name? Uh, Michael Burry, the guy from the movie The Big Short. 
that correctly predicted the U.S. housing market crash and the subsequent financial crisis and managed to make a fortune off of it for himself and the hedge fund that he managed. He actually shorted, so that's a jargon term for betted against the S&P 500 this year and had to eventually close that position because the S&P 500 has had one of the best years on record. Yeah, which just goes to show why it's very hard to make these kind of like high level predictions. I mean, someone like Michael Burry, who has been famous for calling something and getting something right when everyone else was getting things wrong. He's kind of been wrong quite a bit ever since. And here's, you know, another example. Yeah, he he bet against the S&P 500 this year. He's like, so he shorted it, which means he would make money if the S&P fell. And they did the complete opposite and probably cost him quite a bit of money. And I just find it far easier to see opportunities in individual stocks because you're not trying to understand the entire economy. Sometimes it can feel a lot more obvious with individual stocks, but then you also have to make sure you're not getting sucked into believing what you want to believe, which I've certainly been guilty of as well in the past. Yeah, or almost go into some sort of fan club mentality. Yeah, I think you can see that with a lot of stocks out there. Like some people, I think you can see that a lot with Tesla, but some Tesla fans almost fail to see anything wrong with the company or anything wrong with the stock. Yeah, it's like, I don't know, football fans, you know, that will just stick to their football club no matter what, except with stocks, it's a lot more dangerous to do that. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, it's funny, there's, they always say don't fall in love with your stocks. And I disagree with that to an extent. I think if you're investing in these companies, if you're becoming a part owner of these businesses, you know, you have to have some kind of a level of an emotional connection to them. And there are experts out there that will disagree, and they're probably right as well. I, I think that it varies from person to person. But you know, I don't want to be scared out of my stocks at the first sign of trouble. I want to want these companies to succeed, which is why you know, we want our portfolios to reflect our best vision for the future. But you also don't want to be so enamored by the stock that you are completely oblivious to all the red flags. So yeah, there has to be a balance between those two attitudes. Yeah, exactly. And anyway, this has <laughs> been a slight detour, very slight detour. But if I veer all the way back to the fact that I sold Cloudflare based on valuation, you know, seeing from my valuation model that shares look a bit expensive, isn't enough to make me sell all of my investment in, in any business. You know, valuation is just one piece of the bigger puzzle. However, Cloudflare isn't, you know, for example, something I would say is one of the best five most brilliant businesses in my portfolio. So if my valuation framework is saying that it's overvalued and I should trim some, then that's what I'm going to do. Maybe I'm not as enamored by uh, Cloudflare as I am in other companies like CrowdStrike and Mercado Libre and Axon. Yeah, and as I said, I decided to trim some of my positions in a few companies as well, which is something that I really don't do that often. In fact, before this month, the last time that I sold anything was back in summer, and it was only one company, DigitalOcean. I think we talked about it on one of the previous podcast episodes. Basically, the quarterly results of that company were an absolute... How do I say this without saying a bad word? Hmm... <laughs> The only phrase that I can think of ends in show. <laughs> An absolute shoe show. <laughs> and yeah, that was just a bit too much for me. Anyway, so in the last month, there were three companies that I sold shares in. 
The first two were Adobe and Tesla, which I spoke about in our newsletter last week. And since then, I have also decided to sell some of my Cloudflare shares for the same reasons that Jamie mentioned. Now, I won't dive too much into why I sold Adobe and Tesla because I already spoke about it in our newsletter, which you can sign up for via the link in our bio if you're interested, but I can give a quick overview. Firstly, I sold £450 worth of shares in Adobe, which was around 40% of my entire investment, so a pretty big chunk. But the rationale was pretty simple. It wasn't a company that I was able to follow that much. And according to Jamie's valuation model, his shares also looked pretty expensive. I mean, it's up over 80% this year due to the AI wave. So I just decided to take some profit, basically. And, you know, I, I still think that it's a brilliant business and I'll still continue to hold a decent number of shares. But it felt like an opportunity for me to just say that one well and I'll take some profit. Yeah, makes sense. Secondly, I sold £400 worth of Tesla, which was far less substantial than my decision with Adobe since I still own over £2,000 worth of Tesla shares. Again, it's for a pretty simple reason. Tesla was a very big part of my portfolio and I was uncomfortable with certain risks that I think we've spoken about before, such as the fear that CEO Elon Musk's antics are causing brand damage that could reduce Tesla's long-term ability to charge premium prices and to make above-average profits. But I still think it's a brilliant business that could really revolutionize the future. And I'm a big fan of electric vehicles, which is why it still remains a large holding in my portfolio. But I just wanted to make it a bit less large due to the concerns that I have. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show that risks in certain stocks can present themselves in a number of different ways. And they are all subjective. You know, for example, I trimmed 20% of Cloudflare because of a risk that I perceived of the stock itself being too expensive, and that could cause it to deliver substandard results, you know, at least in the medium term. Similarly, you trimmed Tesla because of concerns around the CEO and also how large a position it was in your portfolio. Again, just other risks to the stock, so you just decide to trim that a little bit more. So this isn't us abandoning any of the companies we invest in, but just trying to manage a little bit the level of risk in our portfolio. And this is not me saying that I'm smarter than all these professional fan managers that chose to buy so much of Adobe to drive the price up 80% this year. It's just me saying, you know, I want to do these things for my own peace of mind to be able to sleep well at night, because otherwise I'm not going to be able to do this for a long time. And in investing, that's what really matters at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. And I think as well, these fund managers, they do have a very different time horizon to us. You know, they may be looking ahead 12 months, 18 months, whereas we're looking ahead three, five years minimum, which is another reason that explains why shares of individual stocks can fluctuate so much and maybe provide opportunities. You know, if I had a 12 month time horizon, I could understand why I'd be buying Adobe shares because it is riding the AI wave. But with a three or five year time horizon, it's a good business. But if its shares are looking a bit expensive now, then maybe it's a time to put that money elsewhere. Yep. And the final stock that I trimmed was Cloudflare. And like Jamie, I sold around 20% of my holdings due to the valuation, which was around 230 pounds of stocks. And I'm noticing that we're talking a lot about valuation this episode, which is an important aspect of investing. So I'm wondering, should we do an episode on how to try and value investments in the next season of this podcast? It's a pretty complex topic, but I think we could come up with something that works. So on Spotify, I'm going to ask this question and you can reply to it and let us know if this is something you'd be interested in. 
I think that pretty much rounds up what we sold. So why don't we go back to the things that we've been buying this month? Now, I said earlier in this episode that long-time listeners would be proud of one of my investments this month, I hope. And here it is. Drumroll, please. Searches for drumroll sound effect on the internet. (laughs) I invested £700 into a global pie that consists of two global index funds. 90% of this pie is made up of the Vanguard FTSE all-world USIT CTF, ticker symbol VWRP, and 10% is made up of the iShares MSI World Small Cap USIT CTF, ticker symbol WLDS. So the majority of my investment went into the Vanguard FTSE All-World ETF. This is simply a basket of over 3,000 large and medium-sized stocks from across the globe, giving me instant diversification in my investments. I also opted for the accumulating version of this fund, which means that any dividends received will be automatically reinvested back into the fund rather than paid out to me as a cash dividend. And reinvesting your dividends can actually make a huge difference to your overall return because that dividend is going to start compounding as well. So it makes sense to opt for an accumulating version of the fund, although not everyone does, but more on that later. Now, what is so special about this investment for me is the fact that it's the first time I've added any funds into my portfolio. Finally, common sense has prevailed. I've always said that anyone who starts out investing should probably start with a well-diversified global ETF. And I've always said how they can be a brilliant backbone to any portfolio and how they allow you to benefit from the stock market without having to put in hours learning about and keeping up to date with individual companies. In fact, I'm pretty sure I've said all of those this season on the podcast. And yet, I have only ever really owned stocks of individual companies. There's two reasons for this. One is simple. Researching and investing in individual companies is a hobby of mine that I enjoy. So, nice easy one there. However, the other reason is a bit more complex. I started investing in 2020 and continued to invest more and more heavily in 2021, primarily in high-growth technology stocks. Yet in 2022, most of these high-growth stocks saw their shares fall by 50% or more and my portfolio got whacked. Now by the time that 2022 came around, I knew so much more about investing. I realized a lot of the mistakes I had made and I'd continued to tweak my approach to find something that worked for me. And honestly, at this point, I did actually want to start investing a chunk of my portfolio into funds, but I decided against it. The reason being that I thought a lot of these high-quality growth stocks that had crashed in value were now looking far more attractive from a valuation point of view. So I thought to myself, what's the point of having learned everything I've learned over the past few years, now having the opportunity to buy high-quality companies at a much more reasonable share price, and just saying, no thanks? This simply didn't make sense to me especially since I was more than willing to put in the time and effort to keep researching and learning. So I made a deal with myself, although I told Andrea too, so she can vouch for me. I said that I will start investing in funds once my portfolio returns to a break-even point, i.e. once my portfolio stops being in the red. Now, at the point I was saying this, my portfolio was down by almost 50%, so I wasn't expecting to break even for a good few years. However, in 2023, things turned around, and I finally stopped making a loss in my portfolio after two years in the red. And I'm actually thinking this could be a good idea for season five, because there's so many lessons you learn from seeing your portfolio losing money 
for two straight years and about half of them are trying to deal with that psychologically. It's not fun. So this is why I waited until now to start investing in funds and I'm very happy that I did. There's also the fact that a lot of the individual stocks in my portfolio are starting to look more expensive than they have for the last 18 months. So this month I was far less inclined to buy them. It was basically a perfect storm and I'll be honest after some pretty rubbish years when it comes to investing I feel like this is one of those moments where you can kind of take a step back let out a sigh of relief and be like okay you know it's it's not all a complete headache and and sometimes it does go well yeah I'm not stupid enough to think that I can actually do this and consistently have good returns like this but um, I'm just happy that I've managed to achieve it this year I'm sure that the next few years will uh, do more than enough to uh, keep, keep my feet on the ground. So this is why I invested £700 this month into my global pie. It's also worth just touching on the iShares MSI World Small Cap ETF that makes up 10% of this pie. So the FTSE All World ETF invests in large and medium-sized companies, but I do want a bit of exposure to smaller companies across the globe too. And that's exactly what the MSI World Small Cap ETF gives me, with over 3,000 small stocks from all over the world. I'm wondering, is it MSI or MSCI? Because I've heard people say MSCI. I say MSI because, you know, you know, when I was at uni, there were like masters of science. So MSI. So I just kind of pronounce it like that. But I don't know, it might be MSCI. I think it has to be MSI. Like you wouldn't pronounce FTSE. FTSE. No, FTSE. FTSE. But whatever. Yeah, but for example, you pronounce... S&P, but I don't know what could, that could be. SP. <laughs> SP. SP. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, or ETF could be ETF. I feel like this would just make things more confusing. Yeah, I don't know, but I have heard people calling it MSCI, so we'll see. I'm sticking with MSI. So is that me finished with individual stocks? Absolutely not. I'll keep researching and investing in individual companies, but I now feel like I have a bit more flexibility. If I see brilliant companies at reasonable prices one month, I'll buy them. And if I don't, then I can simply add more to my global fund pie. So my largest investment this month was virtually identical to yours. I put £1,000 into the Vanguard FTSE All World ETF, and I was able to put so much because I sold so much this month and just popped it into a global index fund. The only difference between the two is that you put yours into an accumulating ETF, which automatically reinvests any dividends received from the companies within the fund, whereas I opted for a distributing version of the exact same ETF. And I'm not going to lie, there isn't that much of a rationale behind this. It's just mainly because I like to see my dividends when they come in. I like to receive that notification from trading two on two. But at the same time, I have this ETF in a pie. And when you have investments in a pie, trading two on two offers an option to reinvest your dividends automatically. And I have that option turned on. So it still reinvests the dividend back into buying more shares of that ETF. But I just also see them. <laughs> it's like the dopamine hit from seeing the uh, dividend notification pop up. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> okay, moving on to my last two buys of this month. We recently put up a video on Instagram showing what I'd invested in this month. However, since recording that video, I had sold Cloudflare for £230 and reinvested that amount into a couple of individual stocks. 
First, I put £100 into Airbnb, which I won't dive too much into because I actually invested in Airbnb at the start of November as well, meaning that I spoke about it in the previous What We Invested In This Month episode. So I don't want to keep repeating it, but here's the short version. It's got a great brand, fantastic leadership who own a big chunk of the company. It has a strong network of guests and hosts, plenty of room for growth, and I feel happy buying shares at the current price. I then decided to put the remaining £130 into Mercado Libre, which is actually my second largest individual stock investment. I have over £3,000 in shares of Mercado Libre, and it makes up just over 5% of my total portfolio. Given that, you won't be surprised to hear that I think this is a special company. The lazy way to describe Mercado Libre is that it's like the Amazon of South America. Wait a minute, I thought there was already an Amazon in South America. <laughs> Again, I'll be googling for sound effects. So I assume you don't mean that it's a river. No, so it's like the Amazon of South America is in it has a big e-commerce platform and logistics network. Oh, that Amazon. And it's also like the PayPal of South America because it has a very popular digital wallet that can be used for peer-to-peer payments. Unsurprisingly, the company has a huge opportunity in a bunch of growing markets, but the most impressive thing about Mercado Libre has been its ability to execute flawlessly. Every single quarter, the company seems to beat expectations, regardless of any issues in the economies of South America, such as inflation being over 100% in its home country of Argentina or lackluster economic growth in Brazil. Mercado Libre delivers time and time again. And yes, that was an intentional pun. You're welcome. Here's to hoping that I managed to find that sound effect. Shares of Mercado Libre have also had a fantastic 2023, growing by over 90% so far. Yet, I still think the shares are reasonably priced given the expected growth of the company's revenues and profits over the next few years. So, what I see here is a high-quality business at a reasonable price, which is why I'm more than happy to top up my existing investment in Mercado Libre. So, there you have it. This is exactly what we did with our money when we invested this month. And I also want to make note of one other thing, and that is that this episode is the penultimate episode of Season 4 meaning we only have one more episode left in 2023. And as it stands, we're planning on next week's episode being some kind of big wrap-up of everything that happened in the year, kind of reviewing our portfolios, reviewing the big financial news, and looking forward to 2024. And also, we may have an announcement on how we will set up this podcast and release it and do stuff with seasons and whatnot going forward in that episode, so make sure you are there. It's also worth reiterating that nothing here should be taken as financial advice, and these are certainly not recommendations. We have our own reasons for investing this way, and putting our money into these investments can certainly prove to be a mistake. Only time will tell, but it's important to reiterate that you should not make any investing decisions on the back of this episode. We really hope that you found this episode helpful. If you did, take a screenshot of the podcast and share it to your Instagram story and tag us at Stocks and Savings. And please give this episode a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Since we're a smaller podcast, these two things would really help us to reach more people, gain credibility, and hopefully dedicate even more resources to bringing you a podcast that will help you build wealth whilst enjoying life. Thanks again to our season sponsor, Trading212, and remember to check out the referral link in the description and get your mystery-free share worth up to £100. Keep in mind that terms and conditions apply to the offer. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope you can join us next week for our season finale.
Until next time, bye-bye.